Well, good morning, boys and girls. My name is Pastor Jeff, and I am visiting today, and I want you to help all of us think about what we're going to be talking about in our message. So I have a question. The question is this. Who is bigger? Who is stronger? Who is greater? You or your mom or dad? Who do you think? Yeah, your mom and dad are bigger or stronger than you. Now, here's another question. Who is bigger or greater or stronger, your mom or dad or a policeman on duty with a gun maybe on their side? Who do you think is bigger or powerful? I think the policeman is too. Uh, who is more powerful or bigger or greater or stronger, that policeman who's on duty with the gun on his side or the president of the United States? Oh, I think the president is too, that's right. And there's one person more powerful than the president of the United States, more powerful than anyone on the whole earth, and that person is our God, exactly, God, that's right. So this morning, we're going to be talking about how our God is, are you ready, bigger, better, greater than any other pretend God out there. And I have a job for you this morning. When you are done church and on the way home and you're in the car, I want you to ask your mom or dad or maybe the person you came to church with a question. Are you ready? You know what the question is going to be? Because in the message, in the sermon we're about to hear, we're going to hear about from the Bible that our God is bigger or better than all the other gods in two ways. Two ways. So that means your mom and dad have to listen very, very carefully for these two ways in which our God is bigger and better and greater than all the other pretend gods. Because on the way home, you're going to say, Mommy or Dad, were you listening this morning? Can you tell me what the answer is to the two ways that our God is bigger or better or greater than all the other pretend gods? Will you ask them that question, please? Please do that, yes. Okay? And if they don't have an answer, then you go like this. Okay? Right, yes. Now, before we hear that message, we have a song. It's, I, 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 I hope you know it. If you don't, it's simple to learn. We're going to ask everyone to sing it with us. You can stand up. There are some simple actions. And the, and the song is, My God is so great, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do. Would you stand up? I'll sing it with you. Everyone else will too. It goes like this. Ready? Start off like this. Where's your muscles? My God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. My God is so great, so strong and so mighty, there's nothing my God cannot do. You ready? The mountains are His, the rivers are His, the stars are His handiwork too. My God is so great, strong and so mighty there's nothing my god cannot do all right well thank you you go back to your moms and dads and they and you two listen for these two ways in which our god is bigger or better or greater than all the other pretend gods that people worship Before we turn to the Word, I'd like to introduce myself. Not that that's so important, but you're probably curious. Who is this 
egghead professor from Calvin Theological Seminary worshiping with you this morning. Let me start off by saying this is not my first time here. In fact, I preached here quite a few times and spoken in adult education quite a few times, but it was a long time ago, maybe 15 years even. I'm not sure what I did wrong in the past, but apparently uh, you've either forgotten about it or forgiven me for it, and so in God's providence, here I find myself at Ivan Rest again. And your previous pastor, Tony, was a former student of mine because I've been teaching for a long time, for 27 years at Calvin Theological Seminary. I have other important things about my life, though, and the perhaps most important is I'm married. My wife, Bernice, is with me this morning. We've been married 36 years. Changes every year, you know. It's hard to keep track. So uh, we have four children, uh, three of whom are married, and we have seven grandchildren, so that's all exciting. In addition to teaching and preaching, uh, I also lead seminars for pastors, different places around the United States and Canada where they can steal some ideas and then turn it into a sermon series in their home congregation. I also speak on a variety of topics, often they're controversial, so it can be a little dicey. I also lead biblical tours to Greece and to Turkey and to Italy and to Israel and to Jordan. And uh, it's always fun to show how the ancient world makes the scriptures uh, come alive. But uh, this morning, I am here in my role as a preacher. And even though I'm a professor of New Testament, I'm living dangerously today. I'm turning to the Old Testament to the prophecy of Isaiah. Maybe you've heard a lot about Isaiah already in our liturgy this morning. Would you turn in your pew Bible to that text so that both now and throughout the message we can hear and see what God is saying to us in His Word. We're looking at Isaiah 46, Isaiah 46, the opening seven verses. You'll find it on your pew Bible on page 593. Page 593. And you can see from the heading, which of course is not part of the inspired text, but it is helpful, that our text apparently is going to talk about the gods of Babylon. Or more precisely, our text is going to be comparing the gods of Babylon with the God of Israel. Isaiah 46, Bel bows down, Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne by beast of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. With whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? Some pour out gold from their bags and weigh out silver on the scales. They 
hire a goldsmith to make it into a god, and they bow down and worship it. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it up in its place, and there it stands. From that spot, it cannot move. Though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer. It cannot save them from their troubles. What do you need most of all in the new year of 2020? This is indeed the last Sunday of 2019. We're right in this momentous moment where we look back to the old year, we look ahead to the new year. And if you would do that for a few moments this morning, if you would kind of reflect on Well, your ambitions, your wishes, your dreams, if you will, for the new year, what would you say to the question, what do you need most of all in the new year, the new decade of 2020? Well, I'm sure that some of you at least are saying this to yourself, you're saying, What I need most of all in 2020 is a new job. The one I have doesn't pay very well, and what's more, I don't like it. I mean, I I find it so hard in the morning to drag myself out of bed and head off to work. What I really want most of all in the new year is is a more meaningful job. That's what I need most of all in 2020. I'm pretty sure others are saying, What I need most of all in 2020 is good health. I was sick a lot this past year, and, well, I I couldn't really do the things that I wanted to do. In fact, some of my health concerns were so serious, I'm wondering about just my life and how long I'm going to live. And and it's just exhausting, all these visits and dealing with this and dealing with that. And what I need most of all in the new year is, well... An uninterrupted period of good health. That's what I need most of all in the new year. I'm pretty sure that at least some of you are saying, what I need most of all in 2020 is more money. I mean, the money I have just, well, it goes. I mean, you know, you got house payments and maybe car payments and you got food bills and there's this and that and man, I could really use some more money, you know, to pay off my bills, maybe build a little nest egg for the future, maybe even a little bit of extra money, you know, to get this or that. What I need most of all in the new year is some some more moolah, some more cash. Perhaps some of us older ones are saying, what I need most of all in the new year is, well, for God to answer my prayers for my wayward son or daughter. My child, you know, grew up in the faith. They grew up perhaps even in this Ivan Rest Church. And, and, you know, the two of us as parents shared the good news with, the, with them. And, and we brought them up in the way that, that we were supposed to. And, and yet they've turned their backs on God. And we're praying and praying for something to happen. What we need most of all in this new year is for God to answer those prayers. 
Well, there are lots of things, perhaps, that you're thinking about this morning. But as you're thinking about all your wishes and dreams for the new year of 2020, remember my question was very specific. I said, what do you need most of all in the new year of 2020? And if you're very specific in that way, I want to suggest to you that our answer should be different. What we need most of all, I mean, all those other things are important, yes. We all want to have a, 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 a meaningful job. We all want to enjoy good health. We all want to have enough money and maybe even more than enough. And we all definitely want to see answers to our prayers and the spiritual growth of our children. But brothers and sisters, what we need most of all in this new year of 2020 you know what it is already. We talked about it with the kids. We need a very muscular God. We need, like, a powerful God. I mean, we need the kind of God who is more than powerful enough, more than mighty enough, more than big enough to what? Well, to lead us into this new year, to sustain us in times of trouble, and especially to save us. In the words of my sermon title, what we need most of all is an incomparable God. A God when compared to all the other gods out there that people foolishly worship, He blows the competition away. And you know what? We meet just that kind of incomparably great God in our scripture text this morning. I draw your attention to the question that God asks in verse 5. He says, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we may be compared? God is challenging his people. God's kind of throwing the gauntlet down and he's saying, do some comparison God shopping. Well, we just finished the shopping season, right? I mean, I I hope that in this Christmas season you didn't foolishly buy, you know, the first thing you saw. I mean, you, you, you first had to think about one product over another product, whether it was better or worse. And then once you narrow down whatever it is you wanted to get, I hope, again, you didn't foolishly just buy it at the first store you went to. You probably went around, maybe searched on the Internet. I mean, you want to get the best possible deal for your money. And that's really what God is challenging the Israelites of old and us today to do. God says, you know, look around. God says, I'm not afraid for this comparison. Check out there all the competition, the, the people and things vying for your allegiance, your devotion, your attention, and, and see who's the best deal. See who comes out on top. Now, I'm afraid that you probably don't appreciate how hard this question was for the Israelites to hear. And I don't blame you because we have to know something about what was going on at the very moment when God laid down this challenge. You have to realize that at this moment in Israelites' history, things were about as bad as they had ever been. What was going on at this time? Well, the Israelites were not masters of their own country or nation. 
The Babylonians were in charge. King Nebuchadnezzar came into their region and captured the Israelites. And Jerusalem, their impressive capital city with its mighty walls and spectacular gates, trashed. The temple, the good luck charm of us. I mean, no one can touch us when we've got God in the pocket, our ace in the hole. Well, guess what? The temple, too, completely ruined. No hope for the future because all the movers and the shakers, the people with the brains and the bucks were hauled up and and carted away to the faraway land of Babylon. Actually, we don't even have to imagine what the Israelites were thinking during this time. All we have to do is look it up in Psalm 137. You know, Psalm 137 has some words that are are probably known to you, and they're relevant to our text this morning. Psalm 137 says, "By, By the rivers of Babylon we sat, and we wept when we remembered Zion, the home country. And there on the poplar trees we hung our harps. Our captors demanded us songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how? How can we sing one of the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? I mean, how can you do that? How can you sing God's praises when you're rotting in exile in a country that's not your own? And in the midst of this extremely depressing, low moment, God comes to them and says in verse 5, with whom will you compare me or count me equal? To whom will you liken me that we can even be compared? Well, in our text, there are actually a number of comparisons between the gods of Babylon and the God of Israel. We're looking at just two of them this morning. And moms and dads, if you don't want to be embarrassed on the way home, you might want to pay attention. The first of these two comparisons or contrasts goes like this. Idol gods are carried by people, but our God carries us. Idol gods are carried by people, but our God carries us. Our text starts off, you can see it there, right, in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 46, in talking about two of the many gods that the Babylonians worshipped. The two most important gods were the names Bel and Nebo. Bel was, well, the papa god, if you will, the head honcho god, and we come across his name in the form of uh, Belchazer, one of the Babylonian kings, and One of Daniel's friends named Belteshazzar, Nebo, King Nebuchadnezzar. He was supposedly the son of Bel, associated with knowledge and learning. And in any case, we have right out of the gate the two most powerful gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo. And yet, notice how they're described. I hope you're following along. We read, 
Bell bows down, Nebo stoops low. In the Hebrew language, these are verbs of shame and humiliation. But I'm especially interested in light of our first comparison with the next line. Their idols are born, and that's not B-O-R-N, but B-O-R-N-E, right? That's a nice old-fashioned English word for carried, yes. Their idols are born by beast of burden, and we turn the phrase for the parallel line in the next page. The images that are, you can say it, are carried about are burdensome, a burden for the weary. So here are these supposedly great gods, and guess what? They can't go from place to place on their own power, under their own steam. They have to be hauled from point A to point B, and as a result, they're, well, instead of helping their people, they're a burden for their people. We find the same picture of helplessness in verses 6 and 7. There we read about how people would take their precious metal, their gold and their silver, and they would go to a jeweler and they would say, please make for me out of this a god. And the first thing the jeweler would do would put it on the scale because a percentage of the weight of this valuable metal would be his commission. And then the rest of it, he would melt, he would pour into some kind of mold, and out would emerge, well, an image. And we read what? We read in verse 7, afterwards they lift it, that is this created pretend God. They lift it to their shoulders and they, say it please, those of you your Bible, and they what it? They carry it, yes. They set it up in their, its place and there it stands. From that spot it cannot move. So, what do we learn about the gods of Babylon? Well, they have to be carried by their worshipers. Well, what about the God of Israel? Yahweh, the Lord, our God. How does he stack up against these Babylonian gods? Well, notice what we read in verses 3 and 4. Notice there's a little gap between verses 2 and 3 because we're shifting from a description of the Babylonian gods to now a description of the God of Israel. And in verse 3 we read this, Listen to me, you descendants of Jacob, all the remnant of the people of Israel, you whom I have upheld since your birth and have, please say it, carried since you were born. Even to your old age and gray hairs, I am he. I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will... And I will sustain you and I will rescue you. God is a God who what? Who carries. Now here we have a parent picture of God because that's what parents and grandparents do, right? They carry their kids and their grandkids, right? On the way into church this morning, I saw some of you, you know, your little ones are either too small to walk or you don't want them to fall and get wet and dirty and so you, you carry them. We do that more and more with our seven grandchildren, seven and younger, right? Uh, the little ones, you go for a walk of any little distance, and pretty soon they're tired, and, and Grandpa tries to stay in shape so he can put them on his shoulders and carry them. But already the seven-year-olds, you know what I mean? That's, that's getting hard because we as parents and grandparents, we only carry our kids for a little while, right? Pretty soon they have to, well, they have to get around on their own steam, 
But that's not what God does with us as people. He carries us, well, he carries us from the very beginning of life. Did you catch that there in verse 3? You whom I have upheld since your birth and have carried since you were born. And then right to the very, very end, verse 4, even to your old age and gray hairs, I am the one who will carry you. God is a God who carries us our entire life. And I want you to remember that, dear friend, as you begin this new year of 2020, that God is a God who carries his people. I say that because 2020 may not be a good year for you. I mean, I hope it is. I hope that all your dreams, assuming that they're legitimate and uh, appropriate, will be realized. But there's no way that I can promise that because, well, I live in the same world that you do, right? It's a fallen world in which even bad things happen to good people, to God's covenant people. And so 2020 may not be the best year for you. I mean, it could be a year in which, well, the word downsizing takes on an all too realistic meaning. It could be a year in which you as a young adult finally get to do what you supposedly wanted to do all your life, to get away from home and be on your own, and then suddenly, you know, you feel awfully lonely, awfully vulnerable. It could be a year, you know, when you're in the doctor's office and he's got a very solemn look on his face and he says, you know, I'm afraid that the CAT scan shows. 2020 might also be the year in which you face what the Bible calls the last enemy, and that is death. And it could be the death of, well, it could be the death of your parents. It could be the death of a spouse. And it even could be, and I say this because it's happened to my wife and I, it could even be the death of one of your children. And if that does happen to you, brother or sister, in this new year of 2020, guess what? You're going to need to be carried. The last thing you need is a weak God, an impotent God, a God that only adds to your burden and your pain. What you need is a powerful God. What you need is an incomparably great God, a God who can wrap his loving arms around you and pick you up and carry you when you cannot go on your own steam. And that's the God, what? The God of the Bible. The God we write with a capital G. That's the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because in this new year of 2020, don't ever, ever forget that idol gods are carried by people. But our God carries us. Well, there's a second there's more, but a second one, that second comparison we're going to look at this morning. And this comparison goes like this. Idle gods cannot save, but our God can and does save. Idle gods cannot save, but our God can and does save. 
In verse 2, we've already talked about how in verse 1 and a little bit in 2, how the gods of Babylon are being described in a humiliating way and how they have to be carried. But notice this line in verse 2. They, that is, Bel and Nebo, these gods, stoop and bow down together. Here it comes, unable to rescue. That's the same word for save. Unable to rescue the burden, they themselves go off into captivity. The same inability to save or to rescue is found in verse 7. Remember verses 6 and 7 are when people take their gold and their silver and they ask the goldsmith to kind of make it into an image and we read about how they carry it on their shoulders, they lug it back at home and then notice what it says in, in, in verse 7. They lift it to their shoulders and carry it. They set it in its place and then these lines. There it stands, from that spot it cannot move, even though someone cries out to it, it does not answer, it cannot What's the word? Save them from their troubles. Well, the Israelites are actually not hearing anything new here. This is a message that God's people, well, they had not only heard it before, they'd actually seen it before in a very powerful way in, in an event in Elijah. Elijah. Remember, Elijah had this big showdown with 850 prophets and other worshipers of Baal on Mount Carmel. We had a couple of big football games yesterday, and maybe you thought they were impressive, you know, these teams, mighty teams battling against each other. Well, well this looked like, a, this looked like a, a, an impossible contest. I mean, uh, 850 to 1. <laughs> 850 Baal worshipers to the one lonely representative from Yahweh the Lord. And the competition rules were pretty clear. You know, let the God who sends down fire be declared the one and only true God. And the Baal team, I guess, won the toying cost because they were up to bat first. And, uh, and they were up for the challenge. They started off in fine form and unison, all chanting, you know, Baal, answer us. And apparently they must have been training well because this went on for like hours and hours. Baal, answer us. Baal, answer us. In fact, it went on for so long that about noontime or so, he, Elijah, well, he maybe couldn't help himself. He, he, he started just to tease them a little bit. He said, uh, you know, maybe Baal's like traveling or, you know, maybe he's on vacation or something like that. Maybe if you shout louder, that'll work. And, and so they do. They, they shout, Baal, answer us. In fact, it gets so dramatic that they even cut themselves with knives until the blood comes pouring out of their body as they chant in desperation, Baal, answer us. But nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because, well, our text says it quite clearly in verse 7. Even though someone cries out to it, it cannot answer, it cannot save them from their troubles. Well, what about the God of Israel, Yahweh the Lord, our God? How does he, how does he stack up against these Babylonian deities? 
Well, we see that he is a God who saves. Verse 4. In that powerful language of God carrying us from birth to old age and gray hairs, that last line of verse 4, I have made you and I will carry you, I will sustain you and I will, would you say it, I love that word, I will rescue you, yes. God's in the rescuing business, brothers and sisters. He's not merely in making your life more fulfilling business. No, no, no. It's much more significant. It's much more dramatic than that. God majors in the business of rescuing people. And and that should be clear to us since we've just come through Christmas, right? I mean, Christmas first and foremost is the story of how, how God is in the rescuing business. We remember, of course, what... The angel said to Joseph about this baby, right? You marry, your your beloved is going to have a baby, and you've got to give him the right name. You've got to name him Jesus because he's going to do something. He's going to save. That's what his name means. He's going to save his people from their sins. So, brothers and sisters, we haven't just heard that God is in the saving business, why we've experienced it, we've seen it in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you, some of you don't look too impressed. Maybe you're saying to yourself, well, you know, Bell and Nebo, who are they? I mean, no one worships Bell and Nebo anymore. Well, that's true, but The trouble is, all kinds of other gods have replaced them. You see, God has created us in such a way that we have a natural longing for the divine. And if we don't satisfy it in its only true place with God himself, well, then we, well, not surprisingly, we try to find substitutes. And so there are all kinds of other gods vying for your and my attention, whether we call them gods or not. These are things, these are experiences where we believe maybe our fullest desires will be met or all our needs will be met. I mean, there's the God of, well, there's the God of booze. I mean, it's true. There are just a lot of people who think you can't have fun. How can you have fun on New Year's Eve without alcohol, right? You need alcohol to have a good time. And, well, you need not only alcohol to have a good time, but you really need alcohol to help get through a bad time, too, you know? I mean, they don't call it Southern Comfort for nothing. Well, I, I should mention the God of money. I mean, I mean, I know that none of us pray to money, but... I mean, in terms of what drives us, in terms of what controls our biggest decisions, I mean, in terms of what gives us a sense of peace and security, I mean, yeah, money, people think will do it. Maybe it's experience. Supposedly the younger generation isn't into money, they're into experience, although I don't know how you can have experience if you haven't got money, but anyway, the idea is, you know what I mean, if we could just have this experience, you know, YOLO, you only live once, right, and so we've got to travel here, do whatever this dangerous, exciting thing is, have whatever this experience may be, because that's living life to its fullest, that's where we find excitement and and joy and so forth.
I should maybe mention the God of sex. I mean, sex is held up as this wonderful, amazing thing, and well, in a certain sense it is. But often, like many of God's good creative gifts, it's distorted, it's twisted, and instead of becoming a wonderful thing, it's an all-too-painful thing. And There are all kinds of, again, gods vying for your attention, vying for your allegiance, claiming to be or wanting to be the most important thing in your life. And I suggest to you, brothers and sisters, of all these gods, I mean, some of them may bring brief happiness. Some of them may temporarily dull whatever the pain of life that you are experiencing, but none of them, none of them meet our biggest need in life and in death. Some of these do okay in life, but they don't do a thing for in death. Because, you know, when you die, there's only one thing really that matters. And that is whether or not you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to the son of this incomparably great God who has rescued you. Some of us look like you're old enough to remember these commercials from American Express Traveler's Checks. No one, no one travels with them anymore, but somehow this line I think you're going to remember, right? Uh, I hope you remember Remember, American Express Traveler's Checks don't leave home without them, yes. I say to you this morning, our incomparably great God, don't you dare leave this church building. Don't you dare go into this new year of 2020 without him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit that we are all too often wrongly impressed with either ourselves or the advancement of our technological age or our military might instead of being humbled by you as our all-powerful, incomparably great God. And so we celebrate your power, your majesty, and your might. And we not only celebrate those attributes, O oh God, we we put our lives upon them because we need your power to carry us because we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough, we're not rich enough, we're not powerful enough to meet the problems that either are already or will come our way. And for sure, oh God, we know that we are not smart enough or big enough or strong enough to meet our biggest need in life and in death, the need of our sin, 
our rebellion against you and your just judgment for that sin and rebellion. And so we pray that the good news of Christmas would indeed be good news for each of us this morning. That we would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are not only a God who carries, but also a God who can and in Jesus Christ saves. Give each one of us the confidence of that salvation so we can boldly go into this new year of 2020 ready to face whatever challenges may come our way. Receive then our praise and adoration. Encourage us with your Spirit's presence and uphold us as your people. We ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.